my name is Mike. I'm Sadia. And I'm Umer. You're tuning into Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. And we hope you consider supporting this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast and becoming a patron. We recently met our goal of raising $200 a month on Patreon, so we'd like to give a big thanks to those of our listeners who've helped us get there. Your support really means a lot to us. And maybe for transparency's sake, we can tell people what we use these Patreon funds for? That's a good idea. The Patreon funds are going towards covering a lot of different costs. So part of it is that they're slowly helping us cover the costs of the recording equipment that we've purchased. They help us pay for the podcast's hosting fees online. We give honoraria to the guests and contributors of the podcast, and they help cover that. And from now on, because we've reached our target of $200 a month, they're also going to help us to start getting the podcast episodes transcribed. Though, just a note on the podcast transcription, we're going to have to wait until March to get that rolling. Yeah, because that'll involve uh, me updating the website, which I have to find time to do. So once again, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you're listening and not a patron yet, we hope you'll consider becoming one. In this episode, we're going to be chatting about the novel coronavirus outbreak. And given the kind of podcast we are, we're going to mainly be discussing the social and cultural implications of the outbreak. And we'll also use this occasion to chat a bit about the nature of the Chinese state. But to begin with, maybe we should just chat a little bit about the virus itself and its immediate biological, epidemiological implications. So what do we know? There's a lot that we don't know. That's kind of what I keep running up against when I try and research this thing. Uh, you know, health experts and the WHO keep saying, well, there's, we have to wait until this thing is over <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for a full picture of, uh, for anywhere near a full picture of what this virus is and, and what it's capable of. But so far, we know that it's not the only coronavirus that we've seen in you know, the last 20 years or so. So SARS was another coronavirus. Yes, and I believe also the MERS in uh, the Middle East. Yes. Yeah, both SARS and MERS were coronaviruses, though. Coronaviruses as such are actually very common. They're common among lots of animals and among humans. And it's very likely that most people listening to this podcast have had a coronavirus at some point in their life. And usually the symptoms of a coronavirus result in what we call a common cold. You know, most types of coronaviruses will give you a runny nose. And actually it's estimated, I think that up to 30% of all common colds around the world are caused by coronaviruses. Yeah. So these more recent virulent forms of uh, the coronavirus, starting with SARS, they're different from what we've known coronaviruses to be. Uh, And these ones, all three of these, SARS, MERS, and this most recent one, which doesn't 
really have a name of its own. It's I, it's weird because it, we ca- we're referring to it as the coronavirus, but you would think that we would have coined a, a different term for it by now. Uh, what is the, they're just calling it the novel coronavirus, right? 2019. 2019, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so these viruses are, yeah, they've been linked to bats. With SARS and with the novel coronavirus, there's this big outbreak that kind of happens and it spreads very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, with MERS, there's been these smaller sort of incidences, right? Yep. Um, since it first came into being a few years ago. So it, I guess they don't all function the same way. And uh, the fatality rate so far, it seems, is also very different. I believe for MERS, it was somewhere between 20 to 30%. Yeah, I think it was 36%. Mm-hmm. Okay, 36 for SARS, I remember the total fat- the fatality rate was about 10. And so far for the coronavirus, what we're seeing is about two. But then again, as you said in the beginning, it is still very early. So we don't know what the ultimate total number. And, and the- for SARS, it seemed like over the course of a year, there was something like 8,000 infections mm-hmm. and among them maybe 700 fatalities. And so far, I think the number that I saw this morning for the novel coronavirus, it's like 35,000 infections and 800 fatalities. 800 fatalities and about, I think, 250 recoveries. Right, yeah. And just so that our listeners know what we mean by this morning, this is being recorded on Sunday, February 9th. And of course, the figures will continue to rise. And so in some ways, you know, because of the increased infection rate, so f- even so far, the novel coronavirus is being taken to be much more sort of dangerous. And uh, I was very young when SARS happened. This was 2003, so I would have been 12, 13. So I don't remember except for just many more face masks being around. Mike, were you around in Toronto then? Oh, I, don't, I think that was just around the time when I moved to the States. I'm mm. not sure, but... You know, I wasn't exactly the most politically conscious person. Wait, when was the Iraq war, actually? That was 2003. Yeah. Okay, yeah, actually, I was around Toronto. I didn't notice that much changes. Although, to be fair, you know, I guess most of my surroundings and daily interactions with, you know, in High Park and the High Park area and Roncesvilles, and that's, there's, at that time, there's not a lot of Chinese people there, so... Mm -hmm. But you're a Chinese person. I am a Chinese person myself. So how yes. did how did you avoid that? How do you not remember SARS? I mean, I remembered in the news, but I'm as again as I told you, I'm not like. You don't remember getting dirty looks and people. Uh well, look, you know, yeah, when you're a kid, you always hear like the occasional odd comment, right? Like I remember in grade five, there was like a white kid come up to me. It's like, yeah, Chinese food is great, but you people are fucking weird or weird. Right, yeah. so like I get that once in a while, but I think you also know that I'm also not the most uh, socially savvy person. So even if I did get dirty looks, I wouldn't have noticed. So unfortunately, I can't really help you there. And for the best, though, is self-preservation. If you just if it rolled off of you, well, sometimes it might be helpful if you you know like are more so- socially conscious. I mean. I, I do notice it a bit now. You know, I taught my students and a lot of them were a bit uncomfortable when, you know, when we came back from break and this was just breaking out. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, I tried to explain the, I try to explain to them at least uh, for the coronavirus here now. I don't think in Canada this is a big deal. And I also said, you know, to someone as a joke who came back from uh, China, she's like, uh, she's in self quarantine. And I said, well, look on the bright side. I mean, you don't have to worry about the coronavirus. Now you just have to worry about the regular flu, which killed about what, 60,000 Americans last year. Well, that's actually interesting because we do keep on the one hand hearing that we shouldn't be freaking out about coronavirus as much because the regular flu Mm -hmm. is a much more regular and known killer. On the other hand, I think I've read and I was reading an article this morning where the journalist was trying to scold people for making that argument because he was saying that no, if I mean, on the one hand, it's supposed to just calm the hysteria, right? And it's supposed to make us see context. But I don't know. I mean, is that a legitimate comparison? Should we be using that to say that, you know, calm ourselves? Or is there something to be said about like that there is something novel or distinct about the coronavirus and it represents a threat of its own? I mean, but in North America, realistically, it really hasn't had that much of a danger. So No. And... um I mean, so far in North America, I believe most of the cases are people that came back from China or specifically actually the Wuhan region. And, you know, we also have uh, Toronto, at least also with the experience of the SARS is much more proactive in trying to keep, isol- keep you know, these individuals isolated and to make sure that it doesn't spread. So I think in Toronto or in uh, North America, they probably done a very good job, at least, in trying to contain this. And I think, I think it depends on who you are and the context of the fear, how the fear is generated. I mean, I think for normal, healthy adults, you know, this is not something that, for me at least, from what I've read, this is not something that I would worry about. But you know, I do have uh, relatives in China. I mean, not in the Wuhan region; they're in Shandong which is northeast of China, Beijing, and then Hainan, which is the very southern tip, the other island south of Taiwan. So, you know, for my much older uh, relatives, you know, my grandmother, I would be a bit afraid or cautious. But then again, you know, when flu season comes around, you're also ten- there's a tendency a bit to worry about. Although I could understand the journalist's argument in saying that these are not comparable. And I mean, he is right in a certain extent, because with the flu, we do have a the flu vaccine, but we also have known antiviral treatments that could mitigate the worst symptoms of the flu. So if you are, let's say, immunocompromised, or if you are of the elderly, usually within one or two days of the symptoms showing up for the flu, they'll give you basically these treatments, and that will mitigate the symptoms. So far with the coronavirus, we don't have that yet. So the only thing that they can do with the coronavirus is they basically give you fluids. They make sure that uh, your body's taken care of. What the doctors try to do is they try to basically give your bo- keep your body in the best fighting shape that it does to fight back against the virus. It's the same thing that it was done for, I think, Ebola and SARS when those outbreaks broke out. And of course, um, mechanical respiratory systems are like the only thing, really. Yes. That's, yeah, there is no treatment. There's no treatment for SARS or for, at the moment, this coronavirus. Uh, but uh, Mike, I wanted to ask, where did you get that 60,000 
deaths from influenza number because oh. I'm, I'm looking it up here and, I, and I, CDC type in the CDC website and then the yearly influenza. Okay, you're talking about the US, the US, no, not, I'm not, looking, not Canada. I'm looking at worldwide. And I mean, one of the headlines I'm getting is there's 5 million cases of uh, influenza worldwide every year and up to 650,000 deaths. I, I think it's more than 5 million cases. I mean, maybe that's hospital admissions. Well, let me look up the CDC. Sure. So it looks like, yeah, there's about 12 to 61,000 deaths. Yeah, hospitalizations, uh, anywhere up to 800,000. And uh, cases of illnesses, uh, or I guess this is estimated, but uh, anywhere up to 45 million people in the US who get the flu. So, Sadia, I don't, I didn't understand the point necessarily about why comparing it or or putting it in into perspective by looking at the flu is a bad thing. I think it was the point that was being made was that that although there is some value to putting it in context or even showing the hypocrisy that the known illnesses don't get the kind of attention that this just novel illness is getting just because it's new and sexy, but that there is something specific to the coronavirus that's it's not just the flu. And as Mike was saying that even though there is you know, such a high incidence, we know how to tackle, tackle it. Whereas the coronavirus, uh, we don't quite know how to contain it fully. And so I guess the journalist was saying that a, a certain amount of like, specificity given to the novel coronavirus is justified instead of saying that, well, it's actually not as bad as the seasonal flu. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, it, it is, it's scary because, you know, it is a new thing. And the people who are certainly who are going through it, people in Wuhan, especially, I mean, I can't imagine how, uh, how scary it must, must have been, especially at first. And even now, I mean, the whole city's on lockdown. And I think, I mean, when initially Wuhan was put on lockdown, the WHO had, uh, the World Health Organization had said that this is, a, this is a novel public health measure or it's unprecedented public health measure that has never been tried before for a city, I guess like 11 million people. And then since then, the quarantines seem to have been extended beyond Wuhan. And I think the last time I checked, it was... Uh, the quarantines affected something like 46 million people. So there is something to also the response by China and Chinese officials that there's debate around whether the, that response is is actually making it seem like it's worse than it is or it's downplaying how bad things are um, or are these over-the-top, is, is quarantine a legitimate way of dealing with something like this? Well, what's interesting about this is the very different kind of response we're seeing from the Chinese state and Chinese authorities compared with what SARS was like. So with SARS, for months, Chinese authorities were saying, no, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And it had already become a huge issue in Hong Kong in particular. And Hong Kong was like a ghost town. And then finally, like months later, I think in April 2003, Chinese authorities finally said, okay, actually, the numbers are far worse than what we've been saying. Uh, this is a legitimate crisis. Whereas in this case, I think there was some 
you know, initial effort by the local authorities in Wuhan to, to hush up what was happening. Mm-hmm. But very quickly, the central Chinese authorities moved in and initiated measures to take to take action against the spread of the disease. And just as a as one of the examples of the the level of the transparency is that I think within two weeks of the outbreak being noted, uh, Chinese authorities had released the genetic sequence of the virus to to everyone to look at so that globally, I guess, health experts could could try to come up with a solution. And so I actually, I'd be interested for us to sort of think about, and maybe this would, your research on the Chinese state would be helpful here, Mike, because what is the nature of like the relations between sort of local and regional authority mm-hmm. and, and the central Chinese state? Because I, I you know, in media coverage and, and broader popular understanding of the Chinese state, you know, it's seen as this monolithic, yeah, monolithic, very top down, authoritarian, totalizing sort of state. But it's not exactly that, right? There is a tendency, I think, uh, when we look at, let's say, uh, contemporary media in the United States and Europe, and Canada by extension, we have a tendency to look at the Chinese state as a monolithic entity, and the basically all levels of government as being indistinguishable from each other. And this has not been true since the reform era in Deng Xiaoping. And one of the reasons why the economic reform was so successful was that the central government actually stepped back a great deal and let the local governments, at least the regional governments, have their own initiatives. So in a way with Wuhan, it's exactly as you said, in the initial phase when a lot of the cases when the local government was trying to, you know, keep a keep it under wraps and not make this public, but as soon as the central authorities got a whiff of what was going on and saw the potential crisis, they really stepped in, you know, put down the hammer and then centralized control. But usually, when you look at the Chinese state response, there's actually a lot of leeway, and the local governments are given a lot of initiatives, and this is one of the direct consequences of the reform era in China. I don't know if that helps with specifically with the context. And also, I mean, if you look at uh, the recently the doctor's death. So if you look at it, yes, there is a lot of anger directed towards the local government. But, you know, there is a mistaken tendency to think that this anger directed towards the local government is then directed towards the central government. And usually it's actually very separate. So in China, when the people complain about the government, it is almost always about the local government. And China, when you look at, you know, average Chinese citizenry complaints, you know, they're actually pretty satisfied with the central government's handling of things or the national government. And and the doctor you're referring to is Dr. Li Wenyang? Yes, I think it was, he was an ophthalmologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he was the first, yeah, the initial person who tried to get local authorities to act in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, yeah, ended up dying actually from yes, the virus. he did. Uh, so the New York Times and, you know, various other big papers have written about how his death is fueling this anti-government sentiment in China. I mean, basically, if, if it's fueling anti-government sentiment, it is most likely fueling it towards, you know, the regional government in Hubei. 
and basically the city in Wuhan. I'm not sure if this is going to affect the central government as the way that the New York Times will report it. Yeah. Because when you look at basically the response between Hubei, yes, there is that initial cover-up. But after when the virus spreads and by January, when the local, when the central government stepped in, you know, they made it very clear to the directives that you can, you should not, and you cannot hide this. If you try to hide it and we find you, you're going to be punished. Yeah, I guess, you know, in terms of, like we see, we're hearing a lot of conspiracies about this virus. And one of the running themes is how much China is hiding the levels of infection and the levels of death and that, you know, they are burning bodies. And so, I mean, in terms of this like anti-China, anti-Chinese government sentiment, like it is interesting to hear what you're saying, Mike, because I haven't yet come across that distinction being made, that there is anger, there is actually anger being expressed against the regional governments, but that the central government is retaining a lot of its legitimacy and authority. So I don't know, do you guys feel like there is maybe some truth to the claims that the government is underreporting numbers and that there is still a cover-up going on? Or is that just part of the anti-China conspiracies that we often see? Well, I mean, I wouldn't blame people for thinking that they could be engaging still in, in trying to minimize what's happening. It doesn't seem like they are. But just to give you an example, like during SARS, there was a moment when there were WHO officials who were just completely unsatisfied with the Chinese government and, and what they were getting from them and decided, okay, we're going to visit. They, they got wind that there were some patients with SARS at a hospital in Beijing and decided, okay, we're going to just, we're going to do a surprise visit. Or maybe they alerted authorities. It's not clear. But anyway, uh, Chinese authorities found out that they were about to visit and loaded all of the patients who had SARS into ambulances, drove them around Beijing until WHO officials had left the, the hospital uh, and then finally brought them back. So this, you know, this kind of thing, this is pretty recent. It seems like in this case, it, they're taking a very different approach because I think from SARS, they did. They learned that uh, it doesn't make sense. I also think, you know, you have to remember that China in 2003 was not as connected. And it was, you know, because of that lack of infrastructure, connectivity, you know, there are connected things. Connected um, within itself? Within itself. I mean, you know, the high-speed rail, just all the takeoff, the boom, uh, air, airlines and whatnot, the increased number of cars and roads, and also with the lack of social media. You know, there's just no social media. WeChat, we, WeChat, uh, you know, in ch China at 2003. So if they wanted to initiate a cover-up, it's very easy, whereas now it's very, very hard to try to initiate that type of cover-up. Well, I mean, one of the things is that this coronavirus outbreak comes right on the heels of all the Hong Kong protests, right? And so there's already in the Western media quite a lot of anti-Chinese coverage because of the repression in Hong Kong. And so there is, I mean, it seems to me that there is some 
so conflation going on that you know the way that they're trying to cover up the brutality in Hong Kong that there is a similar kind of um, just like malicious handling of what's happening with the coronavirus. Well, if it was, I don't think they would have quarantined an entire province, as you know. I think we've said in the beginning of forty-five million people. So I think, uh, for me at least, I don't really see a cover-up. Yeah, I, I also don't. But I also, I just wanted to go back to comment on the nature of the、uh, Chinese state、mm-hmm. and sort of explore that a little bit more. It seems to me, like, so in this sort of layered way with.、Um. Yeah. So, do you mind if I just interject before we go to the Chinese state? Sure. So I do think there is a a thing that people there might be something to the question of it being underreported, and this goes to the idea of how strong is the corona, novel coronavirus? Because if there are cases that it gives very mild symptoms, then probably a lot of people just would not go to the hospital. And if that's the case, then yeah, this will be underreported. So there is that question, and then it, t- it ties back to the question in the beginning of just well, there's just a lot that we don't know right now about the novel coronavirus. So it, I think it's part of it the reason why you have a lot of this proliferation of information, a lot of it false, is because there's a lot of unknowns here. And when there's a lot of unknowns, well, people tend to you know jump. Into these unknowns and come up with their own ideas. Well, especially for a state like China, where, like in the West, it's sort of notorious for being sort of clamping down and for being like super secretive and totalitarian. What you guys were saying, like monolithic has control over everything, is potentially able to keep its one billion people under wraps and like get exactly what they want out of all of them. Yeah, I mean that's well. I mean this is probably a topic for a, entirely another discussion. But、uh, it is that I think so, again, as I, I think、uh, I, I think I've already mentioned this. It is that perception. I think if you see coverage of China, it's there's only two modes, which, and it's not helpful to understand. I think the nature of China, which is you view it with contempt, or you view it as basically an utter th- as an existential threat. And there's no in between. And when you have only those two modes, you miss a lot of nuances. But、uh, not to be a historical here, but there's something about the nature of the Chinese state that is almost pre-modern, in the way that the central authorities are able to legitimate themselves、mm-hmm. by stepping in every time there's a mess up among the local authorities or regional authorities. You know, this is quite、uh, was quite a common trope. Among pre-modern states, they they would, or pre-modern empires, right? That like if there was a a local sort of satrap or lord that did something, the peasants would appeal to the the king or the emperor,、yeah. and it was in the name of the the central authority that they would make their appeal. And then sometimes,、uh, you know, the the central authority would come and step in, and and remove the troublesome、uh, local authority. So in that way, it's a yeah. This dynamic, I think, is.、Uh, but I think this dynamic exists in a lot of countries, though, right? I mean, if you look at the United States, yeah, Ferguson, right? Ferguson was a town that was mismanaged by basically the local county, and what eventually had to happen, the Justice Department, the Federal Justice Department, had to step in and audit 
that uh, basically the police county and the local government. So, I, so I'm not conflating that China and the U.S. is the same, but I don't, you know, I do think that this uh, tension between central and local authorities, you know, in very generalized fashion, you you see it in a lot of different places, I believe. I guess the question is like whether there is a qualitatively different legitimacy that the central government in at least mainland China mm-hmm. enjoys compared to conte- other contemporary states like the U.S. or other, uh, to use America's language, other modern states. I, I do think so, yes. And, you know, I, I mean, to, well, if we get to that point, then yes, you're right. And actually in China today, there is actually still a system that is very similar to, you know, the imperial system is where you could bring a complaint directly Mm-hmm. into Beijing to for the central government to look at. Although right. most of the petitioners of these things, they tend to get ignored. Well, and the other th- interesting thing is that despite the fact that we, you know, in the West, there's not really much discussion of this or understanding of this, at the local level, there's a, there's plenty of democracy, right? It, it, there's, you know, at the village level, for instance, village council level, there's, you know, elections, there's votes, and they're respected. But at the central level, people don't have the ability to choose their government. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's the central government that still retains legitimacy. There's almost an inverse relationship between democracy and legitimacy then. Yeah, I mean, well, part of the reforms with Deng Xiaoping also to for the local village elections that happened, uh, one of the reasons I think uh, why they did this was to unload some of the administrative burdens of having the central government constantly having to step in. So you do have that separation when the local government basically makes a mistake in the way that it does. It doesn't really affect the reputation of the central government right. in China. Yeah. So there is sort of that disjuncture. And as I said before, it is important to realize that whenever you do see a local dissatisfaction within China, that's not always going to translate into dissatisfaction for the central state. Now, this is not always the case. This is the popular perception. There are, you know, intellectual dissidents, you know, more liberal-oriented, Western-oriented thinkers that basically highlight the whole systemic problem of the Chinese state. So. You know, there are individuals who see this as uh, a problem of the entire Chinese state. But what I'm trying to highlight is the popular perceptions in China as of right now, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that built in sort of system of legitimacy for the central state. Um, Okay, so, I mean, we should get back to the coronavirus. And I think with all of the research that I went and did, Uh, most of which is not really relevant to this discussion because it was about viruses and biology. Um, But despite all of that research, there's really one thing that that I think stood out, and that was something that Sadia sent me very early on. It was one of the first things that I read about the virus, and and I think I sent it to you, Mike. I don't know if you had a chance to look, but it it was an account by a woman in Wuhan whose mother father and brother all got the virus and it begins with my mother died on the 25th of january uh, chinese new year this account appeared on a chinese language uh, website i think phoenix television website it was a column for that website 
and it was translated by a Reddit user actually, uh, Reddit user China Deek, to give credit there. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciated this account because as we've been sort of doing here, we've been talking about the numbers, we've been talking about the broader sort of system and the Chinese state and all of the things that are a part of this. But this stands out because it, it gives a human perspective to what is happening. And so I, I thought it'd be useful to just read a, a couple things from this. So, so she, she writes this in three different parts. And, you know, uh, through the different parts, there's, there's discussions about the routines that she's engaging in. Um, one of the routines it, she engages in is calling the hotlines. So this is, this is one of the parts where she talks about that. Then I started calling the hotlines again, asking what the government is doing about the virus. I got through to the municipal hotline and they only said they'd recorded what I've said and will report to their superiors. I called the Women's Federation and there was one person there who had no idea what I was talking about. I called the Red Cross and couldn't get through. I called the National Health Commission who said they had no authority over this and wanted to direct me to the municipal hotline. None of the calls I made were of any use. So, you know, she spends hours and hours of her day doing this. And, and yeah, I mean, you can imagine how distressing that must be. There, and then another passage from this, just so that we get a sense of, once again, the human dimension and the relations that people, how their relations are being affected. Uh, I'll, read, I'll read this, her interaction with her father. She says, after my mother had been diagnosed, dad never let me near him. He always stood 20 meters away from me when we met. He would take a step back if I took a step forward and would scold me and ask me to leave. It would anger him if I didn't, and he would scream and tell me to get the hell out of there. I've always been close with my dad, and he'd never yelled at me before. So this is the kind of thing, I don't want to take all the time to read through in the entire thing, but people... People should read through it and we'll include it in the show description. It's a quite a heartbreaking account because through the lens of this one person and her family and how they're trying to, to keep, deal with the mortality of their parents and then not really being able to help, not really knowing what's going to happen, you get this sense of this complete hopelessness and being stuck in a situation where... I mean, in the 21st century, like we just assume that medicine has gotten to a point that these sort of things wouldn't happen. But seeing from what she was saying, it was just like completely, you know, disorienting about what you would do, what any of us would do if we found ourselves in that kind of situation. Yeah. And just to imagine that this is happening all across the city, right? And uh, I mean, all across this province in Hubei. So, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it really brings that into perspective. I think that's important because, you know, while we want to, on the one hand, say perhaps that there shouldn't be all this fear mongering, like, let's look at this from the broad perspective, doesn't kill as many people as the yearly flu, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's the other perspective of, of grounding it in people's lives. Well, I mean, not to get back to what you said about the 21st century, I mean, 
I have my personal experience of dealing with a blood clot and took basically from when I started having the symptoms to actually finding what's going on. It took me about over three months. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then with the high blood pressure, you know, so I tend to be less optimistic about the marvels of modern medicine. A lot of it is just based on contingency and luck. And I do think what you said, though, Umair, is right, that yes, we shouldn't freak out. And, you know, there are, we should put into context, but there will also be times, you know, there will also be the fact that there will be a lot of people that will be personally affected by this. And there will be a lot of personal tragedies because of this novel coronavirus outbreak. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is hard sometimes to keep a balance. And and then I guess uh, to betray a bit of my bias, you know, I, I study international relations and a lot about war. So sometimes maybe, you know, I do have a two, uh, a standpoint that's too, you know, t- further back looking long-term history. So for me, I tend not to focus on individual narratives. So, Well, the other thing is that stories like this also put in perspective that for us over here to be freaking out, it's a sort of abstract fear. But when you read like the concrete you know, uh, a mother and a father and then the son getting infected and, and the daughter being sort of, you know. In a state of grief and I would, as you guys said, hopelessness, it yeah. really is heartbreaking or at least it should put us into perspectives that, you know, this, the freaking out that we have here actually is, you know, it might be a bit much compared to what is actually happening on the conditions in the ground in Wuhan. But then to get back, I mean... The fear is, I mean, yes, it's irrational, but it always comes out of these things when they try to, you know, target or blame, you know, the quote unquote other in our societies. I mean, for example, every time there is some type of terrorist attack, just look at how, you know, the media coverage, the media coverage of these attacks are if as soon as we find out whether, you know, the perpetrator is either islamic or is quote-unquote a lone wolf so i mean for me also the fear is not entirely surprising and but i guess we'll discuss that at a later part well yeah i mean we we should discuss the local context here just because it is our context but maybe we should do that and uh, take a break and do that in the next segment because we've been chatting for a while here uh yeah i think that would be a good call sure So we're going to continue chatting about the coronavirus and its social and cultural implications. And the next segment is going to be made available on Monday next week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next time.